This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we begin our study of the life of Joseph, or Yosef, or something else. We don't know. Uh, we'll be covering Genesis 37 to 40. Yeah, can we just be honest and just point out, uh, I probably butcher Hebrew left and right. Please don't look at me as the great authority of, uh, I go to Israel, I have this tour guide, uh, Yehuda, and he is like the greatest guy in the world like the greatest and he makes fun of the way I speak Hebrew all the time and it's funny and I like it but let's just be clear up front I am not the authority of getting my emphasis on the right syllables yes. apparently I get that wrong all the time so so I often use blue letter bible as a source for pronunciations they have audio of uh, all the different Hebrew words and the names are pretty straightforward, you'd think, because it's like, well, it's a name. You don't have to worry about conjugations or forms or anything. It's just the name sure. is the name. Yeah. So you listen to it. It's like, okay, that's how you say it. But apparently not. Yeah. Um, apparently that's even off. Yeah. There's there's American Jewish pronunciations. There's Israeli Jewish pronunciations. There's yeah. Blue Bible has its own thing. There's yeah. all, all sorts of different ways. A lot of times we'll, we'll throw out some pronunciations. It doesn't necessarily mean we're right by that's any right. means. We're trying. We're doing uh, our best. It's kind to remember of, that our Bible comes from Jewish roots. It's kind of fun. You can look them up. You know, tribe of Gad is is God, pronounced God, apparently. Right. Maybe. It's kind there of fun. Go. So look it up. We might uh, throw some out. We'll try to throw the more common English pronunciation because some of them can be pretty far off of uh, of the English when we try it in Hebrew. So yeah. we'll, we'll try not to confuse anyone too much. We hope you're following along in the text as we go through this stuff anyway. So. Right. And we do have a PDF presentation for this one. I always have listeners tell me how much easier it is if we can put together a PDF. So for those of you that enjoy that, uh, I've tried to just do some screenshots of the biblical text, at least most of it in every chapter today, and allows me to kind of draw on it and point out uh, different things we're wanting to look at. So there's one of those today. Uh, But even before we jump into Genesis 37 here, just by way of review, if you remember back, we've been looking at the book of Genesis, Bereshit, and talking about um, uh, this preface where God says, creation is good and I invite you to trust. And person after person, character after character doesn't trust. God reaffirms the goodness of creation in the story of the flood and then invites people to trust and they don't and they don't and they don't. And we meet Avram and we've been studying this family. We have met the family of God. We've seen Avram Far from perfect, but we've seen him lean into trusting the story. We've seen his son Yitzhak, and we've seen the promises made to Avram begin to be realized in the life of Yitzhak. Uh, We've met Jacob and uh, Jacob, and we've walked through his life in a couple episodes. And uh, we're going to turn, and that that one actually was interesting because it seems like the whole story, the narrative arc of the family of God is taking a shift like Avram and Yitzhak, we could follow it. It was kind of, and now all of a sudden with Jacob's throwing us all off. Jacob has kind of screwed up the story. We're like, what's going on? And which way is north? And and everything's kind of twisted and, and it's weird. And, and now we're following that story into uh, Jacob's sons, particularly into the Joseph story. So that's where we're at. A little bit of a review. And uh, Brent, kick us off. Genesis 37. 
All right. Yaakov lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Yaakov's family line. Yosef, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. That doesn't seem like the best idea on his part. Right. I was going to ask you, though, it only mentions Bilhah and Zilpah here. What about the sons of Leah or Rachel? Yeah, I, and honestly, I don't have a good answer for that, but I, I was noticing that even just this week preparing for this this lesson. I kind of hoped you wouldn't even ask me, but I, I don't have a good answer for that because I don't know. Now, Rachel, that's going to be particularly interesting because her sons are going to be uh, Joseph and and Benjamin, uh, which will be a huge part of the story. Uh, so Benjamin would be the only one of hers that would be out there. Uh, in fact, if I, I have this like vague memory of a Midrash that talks about uh, Benjamin not being out with the brothers, uh, that Benjamin is actually in uh, in the in the home kind of with Joseph as the second. Uh, but that's just a vague Benjamin memory. is the youngest, right? Uh, yes, Benjamin, uh, the youngest of all 12? I think so. I'd have to go back and check now, but he is most definitely the youngest of Rachel's sons. Yeah. Um, now, why not Leah's sons? It's a... Uh, a really good question why they're not actually mentioned there. And there may even be some midrash around that, but I just don't have an answer for that. Well, they are out there later, right? They are. Yeah, absolutely. They're all there uh, in the story. There's just not mentioned. Yeah, just not in that particular mention, which makes you wonder why does the author do that? That has to be done on purpose. So there must be an answer to your question. I just don't have it at this moment. But we we have answers to discover our entire lives. Oh, man. That's the journey. Just keep on digging because they're all in there. But you did bring up another good point, and that is um, Yosef seems to lack a little wisdom. (laughs) He does not seem to be a wise young man and how he deals with his brothers throughout this entire story. So and you're going to read in the verses coming up here in just a moment. Not only does he bring a bad report to his father about the brothers, but when he starts having these dreams, he then goes and like shares them. Like, how does he think? Well, anyway, go ahead and keep reading. We'll get there eventually. All right. Verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Okay. Now let's stop there. He says an ornate robe. The Hebrew literally says like striped robe there. I love the uh, Technicolor dream coat idea here, but uh, we're not even told it's a rainbow coat or a coat of many colors. Even ornate is trying to capture the more, you know, but the, the word here really means striped. Now, it's really not the nature of the coat that's a big deal. I mean, the very next statement is that the brothers really have it out for him after this. They, they Go ahead and read that part of that verse again. What are the, how do the brothers feel? When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Okay, so when they see that their father loved him more, like, what? Just because he gave him a nice coat? And what we often don't catch in this story, and and again, uh, we're going to start getting away from the material I've learned from Rabbi Foreman, but this is more material that I've picked up from Rabbi Foreman uh, and some of his older stuff uh, prior to Aleph Beta, academy days um but he pointed out this is not this is not an issue of the colorful coat the striped coat the ornate coat every one of the sons would have had a coat every 
every son, father provides you with your clothing, father provides you with your provision, father provides you with your food. Like all your provisions come to you from your father. Every son had a coat. What Jacob does is he gives Yosef a second coat. He already has one. Every son has a coat. Every son has a cloak. But he gives him a second coat. Now, to see that in a Jewish world, we talked about Bechor before on this podcast. I believe we've mentioned it, that the Bechor has not only a double portion of responsibility, but he gets a double portion of inheritance. To understand what Jacob is doing in this story, if everybody has a coat and daddy gives Yosef a second coat, this is not some coincidental This is Jacob telling all the rest of his sons, without a doubt, who his favorite son is and who he's claiming to be the Bahor. Not Zilpahs, not Bildads, not not, uh, Leahs. My favorite sons are the sons of my favorite wife. Yosef is the firstborn, and Yosef is my Bahor. Make no mistake about it, all my other sons. I'm showing you, quite literally, in an Eastern sense, I'm showing you who's going to get the double portion and who has my heart. And so this is why their reaction is so visceral and full of hatred, because they see it as not right. But go ahead and keep going. All right. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field. When suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So, I I mean, I don't know how Joseph thinks this is going to go, and maybe he just counts on his father's favor so much that he's willing to just go share these stories. I mean, it's obvious the interpretation of these stories. It's obvious these dreams, what they mean. And I don't know what he thinks, but here's the thing I struggle with with Yosef. Yosef seems to be following in his dad's footsteps quite nicely. Like we always talk about the story of Yosef. The story of Joseph is this wonderful story about this this guy who was so faithful. And you're going to hear me struggle with that on this podcast and the next, because I don't see that. I see a Yosef who's kind of a jerk. Um, He's arrogant. Uh, And it's not just this story. But every single story we're going to look at, Yosef is taking a pretty egocentric, narcissistic view of the world. And we'll point that out in the stories we come to. But this is, at this point in the story, let me at least say this. We haven't looked at the rest. But at this point in the story, Yosef ain't looking all that good to me. He's pretty immature. Seems pretty cocky, pretty arrogant. Definitely not wise. And even his dad, who even apparently likes the idea, like he's keeping these things in mind. He's And the word there for keep is to protect, to guard, to observe. Like, it, like Jacob's like, yeah, I like this, but even he's rebuking Joseph here, saying, I don't, I don't know what you think you're doing. 
And it's tied up in his dad's egocentrism as well. Like Jacob's like, do you really think I'm going to go bow down to you? Like that seems to be his concern. Not the other sons, not the well-being of the family, but me and your mother, uh, that kind of, that kind of idea. But anyway, go ahead and. Well, and Joseph is 17, so it's not like he's super young. He's, he's fairly old for their culture. Yeah. Especially. Especially in their culture. Yeah. He's not some punk 12 year old, like just trying to figure life out. He is, he knows what he's doing. And if he's the firstborn of Rachel and Jacob married Leah seven years before that, then his older brothers are going to be mid twenties, maybe a little older. Yeah. Yeah. uh, As well. So like he's got a, he's got some other guys who are significantly more in a place of cultural authority as far as eldership. And he's saying, yeah, you're going to bow down. (laughs) Yeah. And we even saw, I remember in the discussion groups that we've had here locally, we talked about the Isaac and Ishmael story and how the mocking Ishmael was mocking. And now the roles have switched. Like later in the story, all of a sudden it's, it's Yosef doing the, the mocking. So it's just interesting. This is the story has is not the same story we started with Avram. The family is much more dysfunctional. Things are I mean, when you think about it, this is a pretty screwed up family. People leaving, having to run for their lives, stealing birthrights, stealing blessings, ticking off the brothers. Four different mothers for all the children. Oh, this this story is is something. But Go ahead and keep going. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Okay, so... We have, we have real hatred here, obviously. Uh, this isn't just like, oh, his brothers hated him, kind of lighthearted, connotative. You know, no, this is, this is, they want to kill this guy. Like, that's how they feel about him. Um, we had actually, in one of our discussions, we had uh, one of my past disciples send us a question about Shechem. I've kind of spent the afternoon wrestling with the mention of Shechem here, like rapid fire, three times. And the last time we saw Shechem was where, Brent? With Dinah. With, yeah, with the rape of, of Dinah in Genesis 34. Um, and we, we had that story. And if you remember, Jacob ends that story by saying, you've made me a stench in the, nost- in the nostrils of the Canaanites. And this, in the midst of all of the rape of Dinah and all of that, Jacob's sole concern seemed to be pretty self-focused. Now, did you happen to, in your searches, notice where the first mention of Shechem was? Oh, I did not. Oh, that's really good. First mention of Shechem is in Genesis 12, right after the blessing that God gives to Avraham to bless all nations. Mm. So the first nation, the first mention is this, is this story where God gives the mission to his family. Then the next time it comes up is this story of 
the rape of Dinah, and now they're a stench. So they are not accomplishing the mission. They are not. Uh, and so here's my question, and I don't really have a good answer for this yet. Why are the brothers grazing their flocks near Shechem? I would imagine these are the same brothers that went in, if you remember the story, and slaughtered the people of Shechem while they, uh, after they had slept and been circumcised. Why in the world are they grazing their flocks? Are they now in control of Shechem? Uh, it's just an interesting place to be grazing your... So it's a good question, uh, Brad, for sending that in, uh, but don't have a real good answer, but it does seem peculiar. It seems like the author here is pulling us back to this idea of you're supposed to be in this world to bless all nations. And is that working? Is that what Joseph is doing maybe is the question that the author of Genesis is hinting at because it won't come up again. It's going to come up in this story and then Shechem's going to disappear for the rest of the book of Genesis. So I should say uh, Dothan means two wells. So when it says let's let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, there's there's two of them there apparently. Oh okay. And I, like I don't that. know which. I don't know why it doesn't doesn't specify which one they're going to throw him into or why they would throw it into one and not the other. But interesting. Uh, okay, let's see where are we at. Um, 21, when Reuben or Reuven or something, I like that one, Reuven heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it which we just heard. It's empty. Right. Oh, by the way, there's no water in it. Right. It's going to be an interesting mention. wonder if that might come back later in the story. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see if it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Okay. So a couple things to point out about this story. Uh, they get this great idea to kill him. Reuben uh, comes up and says, no, 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 no. And, and, and Reuben is who? He is the oldest. He's actually the Bahor. Yeah. It's not necessarily who Jacob wants to see as the Bahor, but Reuben is the one who is the Bahor. So he's acting in the role he should be acting in. He seems to want the role, and he seems to want to do the right thing. We're told that he wants to come back later and rescue Joseph, so he gives an alternate idea. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into the cistern, knowing... I'll come back and I'll get him. Dad's going to freak out if his favorite son gets killed, that kind of thing. And it's his idea. But then 
while he's gone. Why, why did he leave anyway? Yeah, it doesn't wonderful talk question. about that at all. Right, right. We're I just... read through that several times last night when I was thinking about this, and I'm like, I, I can't find anything about it. Right, yeah. But while he's gone, and that's a wonderful question, why is he gone? But while he's gone, now all of a sudden Judah steps up and steps into this role in his absence and comes up with this other idea. We're going to sell him and we're going to get rid of him. And I think it probably causes this major, because now Reuben's got to go back to Jacob, father, and he has to explain what happened to his favorite son. And he has to represent an idea he never would have stood for an idea he was trying to avoid. And I think it causes a rift in the family because the next story is interesting. If we were to flip over to the next story in Genesis 38, uh, we're going to start, and I'll start this story here. Uh, At that time, Yudah left his brothers and went down to stay uh, with a man of Adulam named Hira. And there Yudah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kaziv where she gave birth to him. So Judah leaves the brothers. There must be a rift in this larger family. And I wonder if Reuben cast him out, kicked him out, pushed him out got mad or if Reuben, uh, if, if Judah left on his own, but Judah's not with the family, right? Okay. Not only that, but he goes off and marries a Canaanite woman. Exactly. Like there's all kinds of things about this that are a little wacky. Now let's keep reading a little bit. Uh, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar, by the way, means, means palm tree in Hebrew and women's names were often, uh, women names were often uh, trees because a tree symbolized fruitfulness. A tree bears fruit. You want to, as a woman in their culture, bear fruit and have children. So you often named your uh, girls after trees, hoping they would be fruitful. Now, the essence or the characteristic of the tree is what you're really trying to name them for. So women's names are always interesting. Myrtle, uh, Hadassah. Uh, we we read about her in the book of Esther. Her, her name means myrtle tree, and myrtle was known for having a sweet fragrance and being uh, the pitcher and symbol of grace. Uh, Tamar's name means palm tree, and in their culture, a palm tree, they, they have these straight, they don't have these swooping California palm trees, they have these straight as an arrow palm trees. And the idea of the palm tree is that it was, it was true and straight or righteous. So Tamar means righteous. And so uh, he gets a wife and her name is Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Uh, You got a lot of questions there. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Questions I'm going to avoid for now. No, we don't have time for that. (laughs) When Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. It was a common practice in the Middle Eastern culture. In that patriarchal culture, if your brother died with no kids, that next brother would step in fill that gap and then try to have uh, try to have sons and the first son would be in his brother's name to carry on his brother's name and his brother's line. Uh, but Onan knew that the child would not be his so whenever he slept with his brother's wife he spilled the semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. So things aren't going well here for this family. But at least this time we know what he did that was wicked. Correct. Sure. That one's a little more clear cut. Absolutely. Um, 
Judah then said to the daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. But after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had re- recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Shelah had, not gr- had, had now grown up, she had not been given to him as, a, as his wife. So she knows hey, Judah is sliding me here. He said he's going to do the right thing. And it is the right thing. It's the right thing culturally. It's going to be the right thing by Torah later. Torah is going to say, this is how, this is what righteousness looks like. Um, so she's been slighted and it's it's definitely Judah's fault. And she knows it. When Judah saw her, she's dressed uh, like a prostitute. He thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her on the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. She knows how this works. She's going to secure payment. I'll send you a, a young goat for my flock. He said, she, she's not trying to secure payment like a prostitute. She's definitely trying to give herself leverage in the situation here. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she goes after his seal and his cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So she gave, he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off the veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend to the, the his friend the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, "Where is the shrine prostitute, who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here." They said. So he went back to Judah and said, "I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here." And Judah said, well, "Let her keep what she has, or she will become a laugh, or we will become a laughing stock." After that, after all, I did send her the young goat, but you didn't find her. Judah says, well, I tried to do the right thing. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being sought out, she she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. It's an interesting uh, she doesn't publicly hang him out to dry. She sends him a private message to confront him about the injustice. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous. I think that's thinking of her names. Interesting thing to say. She is more righteous than I, since I would, wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And she did not sleep with her again. Now, the next story that we're going to go into is we're going to jump right back into the story of Joseph and Potiphar. Is there something that sticks out to you, Brent, as we go through this that seems odd? Well, did did Judah's wife die at some point? I was just trying to find that. I'm not sure necessarily if we're told. I don't I don't believe I believe the assumption would be she did not. It's a good question. So then what's he doing with the prostitute? Well, doing what anybody does with the prostitute, right? <laughs> well yeah, but like I I don't know. Like why is he I don't know. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. Unfortunately, probably no, more common no in this culture than we would give it credit for. Ugh, okay. Um, what else is weird about this story? I mean, she seems pretty smart. Yeah. What about just the story itself? Like looking back at the macro level of the narrative. What's wrong with this story? Well, people are dying right and left. All right. What is what is Genesis thirty seven about? Which character? 
Well, Genesis 37 is about Joseph. Okay. And what is Genesis 38 about? What's the main character? Judah. Okay. How about Genesis 39? Uh, 39 is Joseph. What about 40? Uh, well, let me look ahead. I think it's probably Joseph. Okay, yeah, what about 41? From it's Joseph. Yeah, it's got to be Joseph all the way down. Okay, this so this, like, this whole story is about Joseph. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, we have a story about Judah and Tamar. Not only that, but it's really out of place. Like he's older now with kids and a wife. Like, so he's with his brothers. And all of a sudden, two lines later, we're into the story about Judah Later, these, this is another one of those cases, like we saw with Hagar and Avraham, like we're going to see in some other stories of the author taking two stories that are not supposed to be next to each other and deliberately putting them next to each other. And there's something here that goes on with Judah that I think is really interesting. So if you went to your next slide on your uh, presentation, you would see a side-by-side of these two stories. We wanted to take Genesis 37, and we want to lay it next to Genesis 38, because the author has put these two stories together on purpose. And so now you see them sitting next to one another. If you were to read through them, you would notice something. In the next slide, I've actually added uh, a word here that comes up. You might notice, if you were looking in the Hebrew, it's the word nakar, and it's the word that's used for recognize. Um, sometimes it's look and see in the English translations we're using, but I'll show you where it shows up on the next slide. You'll see some color added here, and you'll notice how these red paragraphs parallel each other, and the blue paragraphs pa- parallel each other, and in both of them, the use of the word nakar. This word's only going to show up eight times in all of Genesis, and we're looking at the middle four. These are the middle four usages twice here and twice here, and this word nakar jumps out at you. And what's so interesting is the first story is about Jacob losing his favorite son. And whose idea was it, Brent, that he lose his favorite son? Whose idea that he lost it? Yes. Who was, whose idea was it that got Joseph shipped off to Egypt? Oh, that was Judah. That was Judah, right? Who is the main character of Genesis 38? And Judah. Okay. So we have this direct tie here where it was Judah's idea. And they took this, if you remember, they took his favorite coat and they dipped it in blood. And they went back and they said, Father, look at this, Nakar, recognize this, examine it, Nakar, and see whose coat it is. And then Jacob Nakars it and realizes it's Joseph's coat. In the next story, it ends with almost an exact replay of Tamar sending something in to Judah. I mean, I think in his story, these these words, whether whether Tamar knew the story of 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 Judah's past or not, these words ring like a gunshot in his ears. Hey, see if you rec- see if you nakar this, and all of a sudden he nakars it. Like his story has caught back up to him, and he finally has to come to grips with who it is, and what he's done. But we'll come back to that idea in just a moment. I feel like I'd be really surprised if Tamar didn't know the story, because she seems pretty sharp. Yeah, it sure seems like it. Either that or God is definitely leading the steps here in order to say something to Judah. I guess that's quite plausible as well. Whatever, however you want to look at it, there's definitely a wonderful narrative taking place here. 
So uh, we go to Genesis uh, 38 or 39, excuse me, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Uh, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, a captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had or bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the Lord was with Yosef so that he prospered and lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw it, the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Yosef found favor in in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household, of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Yosef. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both the house and the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Yosef's care. When Yosef was in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Yosef was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Yosef and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he... Now see, here's, again, I was raised in youth group with the story of valiant, faithful Yosef, who fled from lustful temptation. Now, I want you to listen to the reasoning here and tell me, how awesome his morality is. Just listen to this. Uh, With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Though he spoke to Joseph day, though she spoke to Yosef day after day, he refused to go with bed with her, or even be with her. It seems to me like he's pretty wound up about me, myself, and I. Just more of the same that we saw in Genesis thirty-seven. Barring the statement of how could I sin against God, his reasoning was completely built upon his own success, his own privilege, his own blessing. I don't see this guy like this selfless Yosef faithful in all the things that he does. I just don't see that. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, she ran out of the house. She called her household servants. Look, she said, this Hebrew has brought uh, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until the master came home. And she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Yosef's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But Yosef, all, but while Yosef was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in his eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Yosef in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Yosef and gave him success in whatever he did. Any thoughts on that chapter before we move on? Uh, well, I've got all kinds of thoughts. <laughs> and we got a bunch that are going to come up in Yosef part two. That's true. But uh, if you're ready, we can just finish up this discussion and head to the next chapter. Okay, so my one, like, thought that I I keep holding on to is the idea of all of the clothing that makes the difference around here. My goodness, It's like, he gets the robe, and then they bring the robe and say, hey, what does this look like? Right. Gets the the cord and the staff and whatever, and hey, what is this all about? Like, what does this mean? And 
And then he leaves his cloak in there when he runs out and she's like, Hey, look at this. This means like what that's there. <laughs> if you have somebody something, then you can do anything. Like that's all the power. Well, certainly the, the coats here in this story, in fact, if you ever wanted to listen to Foreman teach on this story, his teaching, which you can find in a few different places, in a few different venues, uh, his teaching on this is called Goats and Coats. Uh, because the coats in this story sure make a lot of appearances. Like, they seem to have quite the, quite not just a cameo, like the coats in this story seem to have a real big appearance uh, all over. It, it almost seems to parallel the idea of nakedness at the beginning of the story of of uh of genesis but they are definitely making it prevalent showing that's probably going to come back later in our discussion but we'll kind of drop that little tidbit in there for our listeners to wrestle with for now good question the other thing i notice is that whenever joseph finds himself in a new place it says multiple times the lord was with him he prospered he made him successful the lord the lord gave him success blah 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 correct and I and lots of people like to point that out, especially as I'm being hard on Yosef. I'm being hard on Yosef, and people like to respond and like to say, but Marty, the Lord was with him. Yes, and I don't necessarily understand all that. I know it's true to form in life. God is with all kinds of people that maybe he shouldn't even be, but he's the Lord, and he does what he wants, and he is with people the way he's with them, and he's made a promise to this family, and this is the chosen family of God. And I think it begs this question— What does God see in this family that you and I don't see in this moment? Because in this moment, if I'm God, I'm giving up on this family. Like, I'm going to find somebody new because they've lost the plot of the story. Avraham, Yitzhak, things are going great. Jacob hung in there for the next generation. This is not looking good. Why does God keep hanging with these sleazy Jacobs and Yosefs. I suggested in the Jacob story, it was because of the chutzpah. It was because of the fire. It was because of the passion. Is that why God continues to hang on here? I don't know, because I don't know the heart and the mind of God, but I do know that God has perspective that we're going to see by the time this story is up. But I'll come back to that idea in just a moment. All right. The more you talk, the more I come up with more questions. So here. <laughs> This might be my final one. Maybe. By the way, but you could also see the same phrase in the Samson story. Mm-hmm. So you see it in Jacob. You see it in Joseph. You see it in a story like Samson, a guy who is blatantly outside the will of God. We all know that. Jews and Gentiles alike understand that in the story of Samson. And yet God, now the phrase in Samson's story is going to be slightly different in the Hebrew, but God keeps showing up and God keeps working in spite of Samson's disobedience. And in spite of Samson's shortcomings, God keeps working anyway. Is that similar to what's happening in the Jacob and Joseph story? Anyway, what what was your next question? So my question is about uh, Potiphar. It says, once he saw that the the Lord gave Joseph success in everything and whatever, then he put him in charge of everything. And then, so the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The whole household's blessed. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Is that like a, like all he did was eat food? Like he wasn't paying any attention to his wife? Is that why his wife starts chasing after Whoa, Joseph? Huh. Interesting idea. I don't know. Because I, it I seems know. like if Potiphar doesn't have to worry about all this other stuff, he'd have mm. plenty of time to give it to his wife. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Never even thought about that. Boy, I'm going to have to ponder on that one. Uh, That's an interesting point. So many questions. All right, go ahead and read uh, Genesis 40 for us. 
All right. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Okay, so again, here's this wonderful, selfless Joseph, right? Interpreting dreams because he cares so much about himself. Because me, just this is the one thing I want you to remember. Make sure you mention me, because I want to get out of here. <laughs> and Joseph very well knows who these people are. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, and I may, maybe I'm just being way too hard on Yosef, but golly, I was just told about this wonderful hero. And at this point in the story, at this point, I'm not seeing a wonderful hero. I'm seeing a pretty self-absorbed, self-concerned guy. I don't want to say jerk. Maybe that'd be too hard, but man, tough for me to like this guy at this point. And I don't know what, I don't know exactly how these words fit together and what he's saying, but it's, I find it ironic in English anyway. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Sure. Sure. That's going to come back later in the story too, but absolutely. And so can you assume that God helped him interpret these dreams? It's going to be a little different later in the story. So I think maybe we might be able to, but it's a good point. Okay. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, that's unfortunate. That's, that's rough. <laughs> now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. All right. So kind of want to leave this conversation hanging for part two, which will be uh, next week. But um, interesting piece here as we look at uh, the story that's being told here with, with Yosef. Uh, if we went back to that word Nakar, I'm actually going to show you if you went to the next slide. If you remember that word Nakar, and there it is in front of you, and you can see its definitions and 
those kind of things. What really intrigues me is if I were to go down to the usages of the word Nakar. I mentioned it's used eight times. So I'm going to show you the next slide, and we can see all the first eight times that Nakar is used is in the book of Genesis. Now notice the first two. The first time Nakar is used, Genesis 27-23, is speaking of uh, Isaac did not recognize Jacob, did not Nakar him because his hands were hairy. So the first usage is Jacob's deception. Okay, then Genesis 31, 32 uh, is uh, the conversation between Jacob and Laban, another conversation about Jacob and his deception. So the first two usages are about Jacob's deception of others. The next two usages are in two back-to-back verses in Genesis 37, 37, 32, and then 37, 33. Both of those usages are of the deception of Jacob. So now they're deceiving Jacob. The next two usages are two more back-to-back verses, 38, 25, and 38, 26, which is the deception of Judah. So if I look through the usages of this word nakar, I can actually see the same principle we saw with Avram and Yitzhak. We saw Avram's story replayed in his descendant Yitzhak. And then we met Jacob, who was bent on deception, and now we're seeing Jacob's story, quite in a literary sense, being replayed in his descendants. Jacob's being passed on to Joseph, being passed on to Judah. This deception is being passed on. Now, you could even look down there and see what the next two usages are, because those are going to be really interesting, and they're going to be in two back-to-back verses. And just another similar bam-bam usage of Nakar. And that might give us a hint of where we might be headed in our next discussion. Um, But I'm left here at the end of this podcast with this hanging question. Who are these people? It seems like we've lost the plot. Is there any hope? Like, why is God hanging on to this family? We suggested maybe there was chutzpah, fire, passion, Why is God hanging on to this family, the family of God, Jacob, Yosef? Is there any hope? Are they going to turn this thing around? And if they are going to turn this thing around, what is it going to look like? It feels like the story is spinning out of control. And and that's kind of where we're going to leave it hanging. Is this story going to make its way back? And if it does make its way back, what is it going to, what's it going to look like? If this, if the introduction of the narrative If the book of Genesis is about trusting the story, how in the world is trusting the story going to get us back on track? Or is it? So I'll leave that with you, Mr. Billings. That's all we got. All right. We're going to leave it hanging. All right. If you live on the Palouse, join us for our discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. Please do find us. We love to hear from you guys. So if you have any questions or comments, uh, send those in. You can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.